2: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert
4: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back this week with part two of our exploration of fire technology and specifically the match, the humble match, the enticing match, the intoxicating match. Well, I'm getting carried away here.
3: (laughs) Yes, in our last episode, we we really covered a lot of ground. We started with an ancient earth incapable of sustaining fire, and we moved on to humanity's earliest uses of the pilfered flame. Uh, From there, we discovered the great leap forward into fire creation technology, namely fire drills and flint and pyrite uh, or flint and steel, and we also talked about fuel, manufactured fuel such as chopping wood and create, you know, creating uh, more suitable types of, uh, of fuel for your fire mm-hmm. but also specialized fuel and this led to little sticks of wood for moving fire from one place to another and ultimately the origins of the sulfur match in which a little, uh, a little uh, piece of wood is then dipped into sulfur to create uh, a piece of uh, a fuel that lights up very readily uh, allows you to transfer fire from one place to another.
4: Right. Now, one of the things we talked about in the last episode and we needed to make as a very clear distinction was that the sulfur match that was uh, very, uh, invented in ancient China may also have existed in ancient Rome, according to a few references. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, that This was a chemical match and that was used to quickly catch fire, but it was not a friction match. It was right. not a match that you would be able to like. Uh, by
3: striking it across the surface, right. If you were to travel back in time, uh, you know, into to, uh, to, to China at the time, uh, request a match and then attempt to strike it, you would just be a, a match destroyer, right? Uh, and people would be wondering what you're trying to do. Why are you rubbing uh, this uh, th- this special? What was the term for it? Um, the light bringing slaves, yeah. Why are you taking our light bringing slaves and just destroying them against a brick wall? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but they would still be quite useful, even though they could only be ignited by existing
4: heat or flame, uh, because they'd be useful for, say, transferring fire from one place to another.
3: You want to take fire, say, out of a pot and light a candle or something, right? Yeah, and one of the I think the big take home Certainly, go back and listen to that episode if you, you haven't. But I think one of the big take uh and, and one of the biggest discoveries for me was just thinking about fire. fire. Fire as a process, as a thing that happens, and then all these fire technologies are ways of managing uh, that process to transform an event into uh, like a tangible substance, and a lot of times that means sort of putting the fire in a kind of suspended animation, like reducing the fire as much as possible uh, without actually extinguishing it to make it manageable.
4: Uh, And this was also something we talked about as an ancient technology that existed uh, probably even before humans had the ability to make their own fires. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had various methods they'd come up with to carry fire around without it going out. Uh, So, for example, we talked about the possessions of Otsi the Iceman, who was found in the Italian Alps in 1990 this Neolithic uh, mummy who was frozen there in the glacier. And one of the things he had on him was a, a little container made out of birch bark that appeared to be for carrying coals around. So you could take a coal out of one fire, put it in this little container, wrap it in leaves, and you'd have a coal that would continue to burn for hours in case you need to make camp really quickly.
3: You know, one thing I kept thinking about when we were talking about that in the last episode is Disney Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. in which uh, Cratchit, played by Mickey Mouse uh, brings home a hot coal from Ebenezer Scrooge's uh, uh, stove uh, to to light his own stove at home. Oh, I, uh, I don't know if I even remember this. I believe that is the case, uh, unless I'm misremembering. There is no, least, I'm sure you're right. Um, if it wasn't that, it's some other version of A Christmas Carol that I've seen. And I wasn't, wasn't <laughs>
4: doubting you. I'm <laughs> saying I'm not
3: aware. It's also possible that it wasn't Cratchit bringing home the coal, but perhaps Scrooge bringing home a hot coal from his office place uh to ignite uh, some small fire at his home uh, uh, he is all about efficiency yeah but but you know it 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 makes a lot more sense now that one really you know gets down and considers the uh, the pain of having to start a fire. you know it makes sense to bring that hot coal home if you have the ability to transfer uh, transfer it
4: now in this episode, we are going to be getting into the origins of the actual friction match, but I started to wonder, okay, so we know based on the last episode that there were several things that were called a match before the friction match existed. so where does this term a match come from
3: yeah, yeah, we mentioned. Mandarin terminology, we mentioned a little Latin, but as James uh, Wisniak points out in his matches, The Manufacture of Fire from 2005, published in the Indian Journal of Chemical Technology, the word match uh, seems to come from the French uh, meche, I think, and uh, this would be a wick, uh, as in a lamp, and it likely refers back to uh, the Latin uh, uh, mixus, I believe it is, uh, mixa, mixa. Uh, which would be the wick of a lamp. But the key technology that led to the naming of the matchstick, se- it seems, was what is known as the slow match. Now, this is something that's probably going to be confusing yet again because
4: this has some things in common with matches Mm -hmm. of today and the matches we've been talking about, but other things
3: very not in common. Right. The slow match was essentially a slow-burning cord or twine uh, fuse that uh, early musketeers and soldiers used to ignite early firearms and cannons. Uh, To put it in pirate terms for everybody because this may ring a bell, uh, legendary pirate uh, Edward Blackbeard Teach who lived 1680 through 1718 is said to have twisted slow matches uh, under his hat like in his hair um, and then they'd be lit on both sides to frighten his enemies slash victims.
4: So when you hear the phrase slow match, you need to think fuse. It is, right. it, it is like a rope-like object that has been made to
3: burn slowly. Yeah, and but, yeah, but that's the other thing. When you think fuse, don't think a firecracker fuse like you, you have probably some experience with today uh-huh. or like a cartoon uh, fuse, you know, where it's just zipping around really quickly and there's just a fast uh, um, a transfer of that spark to the explosive.
4: No, this would be a slow smoldering – string twine cord type object.
3: Yeah. So yeah, generally you're talking about some rope or cord soaked in potassium nitrate, which is a key constituent of gunpowder, uh, and then it would be dried. You'd light it, you'd uh, you'd blow out the flame, but then a red ember would continue to burn and work its way down the cord. So really if you if you think of a fuse Uh, like a firecracker fuse without all the sparking, and you think about it going really slowly, Mm -hmm. that's essentially what's happening. Very similar thing, actually, to the carrying of
4: the coal in uh, in the birch bark container. It's something to keep a low fire smoldering for a long period of time that can be used to reignite something else quickly.
3: Yeah, basically getting that fire into a state of suspended animation where it's there when you need it, but it's also... You're not just like carrying around a big flaming torch, especially if you're having to deal with gunpowder. Though, as we'll discuss in a minute, it didn't come without dangers. Yes. So um, another place some of you may have seen this is you would uh, would typically find the slow match physically attached to a weapon such as a musket or clipped to the matchlock mechanism of a matchlock weapon.
4: Yes, uh, for a really great recent media example, if you've seen the 2015 horror movie The Witch directed by Robert Eggers, Uh, There is a a scene in the movie where—actually, throughout the movie, um, the characters carry around a musket, and it is a matchlock musket. There's a scene where the father, played by by, uh, Ralph Inneson, is trying to hunt. He's trying to shoot a rabbit, Uh, and you can see it has this long tail of cord sticking out of it. Sometimes they carry it with the cord sort of wrapped around what looks like a cleat of some kind on the stock, and in the scene where he tries to hunt a rabbit— you can watch him going through these kind of uh, tedious, dangerous, laborious steps of like pouring out the powder, packing it, getting the slow match lit and then blowing on it to make it smolder and then clipping it into the hook. Like it it looks like it would be a very difficult weapon to use Mm -hmm. and in one sense it is. Like, But you might wonder watching all of this laborious stuff why was the matchlock musket actually an invention? What would this be an improvement over? Uh, So I was reading about this and apparently Previously, gunpowder-based weapons would usually have to be lit by hand. So try to imagine that like in the moment. The gunner would have to carefully set fire – to the priming powder, which was in a small receptacle called the flash pan, and they would have to do that by hand. And then, of course, the ignition of the powder in the flash pan would in turn set off the main charge inside the barrel and then propel the ball out toward the target. But just imagine trying to do this, aim a weapon at a target while you're trying to carefully (laughs) light the flash pan by hand. Yeah. I mean, it it seems borderline impossible. And uh, generally, weapons before this period were not handheld. You'd be talking about cannons, you know, mounted artillery and stuff. Uh, but the musket was something that you wanted to be able to hold in your hands and aim. And the matchlock provided a huge advantage here by freeing the musket carrier's hands to hold and aim the weapon. So here after you pack the weapon, so you, you'd you put the, the powder for the main charge down the barrel, you'd pack the ball in, you'd, you'd smash it down with the stick, and then what you would do is set the end of the slow match, this fuse-like cord, you'd set the end of that burning, you'd blow on it, get it smoldering, and then you'd clip the burning end of the slow match into a little metal arm called a serpentine, and then you'd put the powder in the flash pan, and after you've done all that, you could aim the weapon and pull the trigger, and what would happen when you pull the trigger is that the metal serpentine would automatically lower the smoldering slow match down into the flash pan to ignite the charge. And this was a big improvement over the hand lighting of the powder. Uh, But as you can probably tell from the description, it's still going to be very slow firing, laborious. It could still be dangerous because you'd probably be like trying to manage a burning slow match as you're like pouring powder into various parts (laughs) of the gun. Uh, so th- there are several drawbacks, of course, to the matchlock musket. Number one, you would have some kind of giveaways to the enemy, right? Like, say you're trying to line up to shoot at night. Right. You'd be having to light these fires and have the slow match burning. You would be able to smell it. Uh, and then, of course, there's the danger of this smoldering thing next to all this powder you're juggling around.
3: This makes me wonder, you know, all these various uh, first-person shooter video games, uh-huh. they often d- d- devote a great deal of detail to how guns are loaded and reloaded and uh, and then brought back into position for firing but it happens really fast it in does, the game yes. <laughs> i wonder if if there is a game out there that gives even like a halfway accurate depiction of the use of a, of a matchlock weapon,
4: yeah, like a fifteenth century first person shooter where <laughs> it takes you know at least thirty seconds to load every shot yeah that would be that'd be an interesting call of duty game right there well, I think maybe it actually could be that kind yeah. of up oh the no, stakes I, you know? I
3: think it would be it would be interesting, yeah. I mean, uh, there's at least one or two archaic weapons in the Fallout games, but you mm-hmm. know it's all on auto reload. You just push reload, and it just takes a while. It would be interesting if there was a game where you you actually had to, uh, you know, do this maneuver with one joystick and another with the other joystick, <laughs> and whereas it was so that actually reloading this weapon required uh, more of a you know a, a cognitive responsibility on the part of the player.
4: And if you screw up while you're reloading, it literally explodes in your face yes. and kills you. And then, but so there's a funny thing here where the progression of the firing mechanism in, uh, in gun technology actually goes kind of opposite of what we've been talking about in the progress of, uh, of fire lighting and matches because you go in history from the match lock musket to the flint lock musket mm-hmm. and the flint lock was said to be an improvement because you didn't have to have a fire lit there instead you just have the powder in your flash pan and it would be ignited by the striking of the flint that happens when you release the hammer Interesting. Now, of course, that has its own problems with the flintlock. I think there was a greater chance of the weapon misfiring, right? Maybe you don't get a good spark or something. But anyway, I I thought that was interesting context for the idea of the match. You know, when you think about the way it works with the weapon is – it's there to be a fire that's ready whenever you need it.
3: Yeah, and this is really, I mean, this is key to so many technologies, right? I mean, again, coming back to even the, um, the, the hot water heater in, in, in a household, you know, it's how do you make sure the fire is there when you need it, but in a safe way, yeah. uh, in a way that is not going to endanger everybody. So uh as far as matches and the match lock and the slow match basically Wisniak uh, writes that uh, the the match was just a you know basically with with more of a modern match it's just a way of having a fire ready for you when you need it and so it's uh, you know a quite reasonable transfer uh, of names here to talk about the wooden match uh, with the legacy of the slow match.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's great because ultimately what we're going to get to with the friction match is that you don't need to have a fire burning at all and yet mm-hmm. it's still ready
3: the moment you need it. Right. And it's, it's certainly going to be a little bit more like the 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 of uh, Flintlock scenario that yeah. we were just talking about. So uh, we discussed in the last episode how humans have spent a lot of time poking around in the fire and using fire, among other means, to understand the nature of various substances. And that's eventually essentially how we got to the notion of using sulfur or potassium nitrate even right mm-hmm. there are these substances we figured out how to uh, in some cases you know refine them and then what happens when you add fire to them well they they spark or they explode or they they, they, they catch fire more readily than other substances uh, and that they can ultimately like sulfur uh, can uh, if coating the end of a little stick can make that stick uh, a a better uh, fuel to use for transferring flame from one point to another.
4: Now, the flame-bringing power of sulfur, as we know, goes back way into the ancient world. That was known about by, you know, the ancient Chinese, by the ancient Romans. But there are
3: going to be new chemicals coming online that may serve this job even better. Yes, humans began to under, uncover new substances, such as uh, is, is even new elements, such as phosphorus, which in the 17th century became the first new element not known since ancient times. And uh, some arguments have been made for other chemists, other uh, you know d- discoveries having, been, having taken place earlier or around the same time, but credit is typically given to the German alchemist Henning Brand in 1669. Now, a quick note on alchemy, which uh, is a rich topic unto itself, but we're largely dealing with a proto-scientific mixture of chemical research and occult magic, uh, the continuation of mystery traditions, etc. I love
4: the period of alchemy. It's so culturally and historically interesting mm-hmm. um especially when you're thinking about the history of science because it is a time when in some cases real knowledge is advancing right alongside what people believed were equivalent advances in knowledge about like demonology and how to, you know, how to do spells. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, that people really are learning things about, say, uh, uh, chemistry and the curing of certain
3: diseases. Yeah. Like, for instance, in Braun's case, he was seeking the legendary philosopher's stone. Now, this is a a substance of... uh, uh, it was said to ha- have miraculous powers. It was capable of transforming metals into uh, into other metals. You know, this is the lead into gold uh, scenario. Uh, but it could also provide immortality. Uh, that's why. It- Factors into a Harry Potter uh, novel, for instance. Uh, But uh, Brand sought it in urine, in urine, (laughs) uh, distilling it uh, down (laughs) to a white material that glowed in the dark. And this was phosphorus mirabilis, or miraculous bearer of light.
4: Uh, Who would have known
3: that pee-pee was so illuminating? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it was. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we will return uh, to the mysteries of the urine.
1: Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
3: All right, we're back. So, as one might expect, given its alchemical origins, uh Phosphorus was a secret at first. It was traded and it was sold, but it eventually it became known beyond these chambers of secret. Uh, its most impressive attribute is that it instantly combusts in air, making it a, a nasty element in many ways. And, and we see we see this today with the use of uh, white uh, phosphorus munitions, which popped up in the 20th century. And, and they are still used today by some militaries, despite uh, the fact that this and other incendiary weapons have been banned by more multiple international laws. Um, white phosphorus munitions can produce additional like terrible burns via burning particles as well as uh, harmful vapors.
4: Yeah, I was reading an article about this in Reuters from 2009 because I tried to sort this out before. It's sort of complicated and confusing because phosphorus-based incendiaries have both legal and illegal uses mm-hmm. in war these days, um, and that can lead to... You know, arguments about specific uses. So white phosphorus today as it would be used as a munition is this colorless or sometimes kind of yellow waxy substance. Uh, I've read this Reuters article mentioned that it sometimes smells like garlic. I did not know that. Uh, But that it ignites in the air uh, very easily at temperatures of something like 30 degrees Celsius or about 86 degrees Fahrenheit and it can be very hard to put out once it's ignited. Um, But apparently common uses of white phosphorus in addition to, you know, just being a direct incendiary weapon – are in like tracer ammunition, so to help you know see where where the line of fire is going.
3: Right. If anyone's or, ever watched any of those old uh, like World War Two uh, World War Two cockpit footage of, mm-hmm. um, of, of 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 machine gun fire, mm-hmm. you know you're seeing the tracers, the, the 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 lights that mark which direction the the, the bullets are going.
4: Uh-huh. Uh, another common use for it apparently is in marking targets, uh, which would mean. You know, So you need some kind of target flare. So you're trying to aim artillery or something like that. You can mark the target on, on the ground that you're trying to hit with white phosphorus, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, to create smoke screens, which would be useful in hiding the maneuver of friendly uh, troops.
3: Yeah, so it basically comes down to yeah, how are you using it? Are you using it uh, to illuminate? Or are you using it to obscure? Mm-hmm. Or are you using it in a way that is either intentionally or... Or, or nearly intentionally uh, incendiary against human beings or, or human infrastructure, or using it to burn people and buildings.
4: Right. That does seem to be the the main difference. So the uses I mentioned have been more generally permitted, but it is against international law to use white phosphorus as an incendiary weapon, especially against civilians or in areas where civilians are clustered. Yeah. Uh, and this, this, I think, leads to disputes because there are like these controversial uses where the forces who used it said, well, we were using it for one of these permitted reasons. Reasons, and then their critics say, "No, you were using it as an incendiary
3: weapon." Mm, yeah, yeah. I remember. Uh, I grew up in a house where we we, you know, we talked a lot about military technology, mm. and and my my dad always he always stressed the just horribleness of incendiary weapons, mm-hmm. such as the flamethrower, which on a video game can look pretty cool until you think about what a flamethrower actually is, and yeah. just the, the, what a horrible weapon it is. Uh, and likewise, phosphorus. I remember him telling me that like if, if, you would ha- if you would have particles of phosphorus like in your skin, they would have to uh, immerse your, your – like your arm in water then to remove it, uh, thus uh, you know, negating the, um, the, the flarability of it when it's exposed to oxygen mm. or free atmospheric oxygen.
4: Yeah, that that goes, everything I've read about phosphorus as a direct weapon is just a, a total nightmare.
3: But all this would come later. We're fast forwarding a little bit with the, the the phosphorus weapons because at first, phosphorus, uh, you know, when it first crept out of the alchemist workshop, it was one of these substances that clearly had a lot of potential and you didn't have to be a, a war pig to see it because no, no, surely this is an element that would enable one to produce instant fire because that's what it does. It combusts. In the air itself.
4: Yeah, what, like 80-something degrees Fahrenheit? I mean, yeah, that, that's that's unusual.
3: Yeah, like even in—I uh, mean, because we're talking about even like in a cold environment mm-hmm. uh, with minimal friction, yeah. you would be able to, to reach that point. However, it would take a good 150 years uh, after its discovery uh, for us to see really the the beginnings of of actual technology that utilized it. And this would be um, the uh, the pyrophosphorus uh, fire carrier that came around. Uh, This, uh, Wisniak explains, was, quote, a sealed glass or ampoule containing a finely divided pyrophoric powder free of phosphorus which ignited spontaneously when the tube was broken and the contents scattered. And he adds that pyrophoric powers are chemicals in finely powdered and reactive state which catch fire on exposure to air.
4: Uh, so yeah, so you'd have a sealed capsule that you would rupture in order to either combine things or just expose something to the air and I- instantly create a flame, which— I don't know th- that version of the of the instant sounds
3: a little scarier than the normal match. Yeah, I was reading about a few uh, really terrifying versions of this technology that rolled out uh, early on. So one was uh, Wilhelm Homberg uh, created a mixture that could be sprinkled onto dry cotton, which would cause it to catch fire. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, then Robert Hare, who uh, lived 1781 through 1858, had a version uh, that again entailed a sealed glass tube. But another, I think, the scariest one. One is known as uh, Rosling's uh, Pyrophorus. and I couldn't find any information on who uh, Rosling is in this scenario, um, uh, like what their first name was, etc. But uh, the, the description I ran across is that it was a the powder was packed on top of tobacco in a pipe, and you ignited it by sucking air through it. I think Rosling was the uncle of Moloch. Yeah. <laughs> now another one that comes up is the phosphoric taper or the ethereal match. And this was a sealed glass tube with wax paper and phosphorus inside it. You'd break the tube, uh, according to Wisniak, quote, with the aid of the teeth or otherwise. Yes, I've read about these, yes. <laughs> and withdraw the phosphorus impregnated taper into the air. Um, these were indeed, not only were these dangerous, but they were also pricey. So they, so ultimately you have a technology that's just not practical for everyday use for, for, for two huge reasons. It costs too much and you might blow your face off.
4: Yeah, uh, I think I have read about at least a couple of matches along these lines that were like some kind of glass container that you were that most people would rupture with their teeth. Yeah. And that would start the fire. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that even without things blowing up, you're breaking a glass cylinder with your teeth, which just that alone gives me the all-overs. Now, there were some other uh, advancements made in fire creation technology that are worth uh, at least uh, touching on. One came from Johann Wolfgang Doberreiner, who lived 1780 through 1849. Um, and uh, he was a German chemist who in 1823 created uh, what some dubbed the first lighter uh, the Doberiner's lamp which uh, it's also known as a, like a hydrogen lighter hydrogen produced from zinc passes through a jet with sulfuric acid over spongy <laughs> platinum on a platinum wire the gas ignites producing a flame so the sponge here catalyzes a reaction with oxygen uh, heats the catalyst igniting the hydrogen uh, this uh, I've seen pictures of it. It does – it looks kind of like a – I mean, it looks like a lamp. If mm-hmm. you were just saw it sitting on a, a shelf in an antique store, you might think it looks kind of neat, but you might not realize like what it is. But these apparently had a good 100-year run as being a, a good way of producing flame.
4: Yeah, if I were just looking at this, I would not guess it was something that produced flame. I would guess that it was a lamp of some kind, something that carried flame. Yeah,
3: it just – at first glance, it just looks like a lamp. Uh, another fire technology innovation of the time worth mentioning is the um, pneumatic tinder box also known as a light syringe or a fire piston. Wow. Now it it depended on the rapid stroke of a piston to generate uh, heat to ignite tinder, and interestingly enough, this is one of these inventions that that, that uh, emerged in Europe around that time, but uh, essentially uh, was a much older Southeast Asian invention. Which is uh, you know to, to say that the, the technique certainly shows up there first hundreds of years earlier, but it's unclear if and to what extent this directly influenced European fire pistons, or it's just you know. Much much later, uh, Europeans got around to it through other technological uh, roundabouts.
4: Hmm. You know, one thing I'm really picking up on uh, from these past couple of episodes is the, the general impression that fire creation technology gets around fast.
3: Aaron mm-hmm. Ross Yeah, I mean, it basically comes down to the fact that any human culture is, is going to need it, like it is such a, an important part. Of, uh, of, of the human experience, like you need to be able to create fire. And so if it's a new kind of match like that, that's going to spread. If it's a, a new element, you're only going to be able to keep that a secret for so long, uh, because the potential there is just uh, too high. All right. So we've talked about chemicals, elements, uh, friction. I think you can see where this is going.
4: Maybe we need to take a break, and then when we come back, we can talk about the invention of the friction match.
3: All right, we're back. We're finally here. We're reaching the point where something more or less like the modern match is possible.
4: Right. So the invention of the friction match, the match that you light by striking it across the surface— is often credited to a single individual, a British chemist named John Walker, who lived in the 19th century in a town called Stockton-on-Tees, which is in County Durham up in northern England. Now, I've come across a few sort of conflicting claims of primacy, though. Most sources cite Walker, but for example, there is a 1922 Dictionary of Applied Chemistry written by the prolific British chemist Sir Thomas Edward Thorpe, and it claims, quote, in 1816, friction matches tipped with a composition containing phosphorus are stated to have been manufactured in Paris by Francois de who by Gentle and others is regarded as the first maker of the phosphorus friction match. But I'm not sure exactly what to do with claims like this because – Pretty much all modern sources I can find give the credit to Walker. Uh, though Walker wouldn't create his invention until later in the 1820s. So this precedes Walker by at least 10 years. And Thorpe himself does claim that Walker invented the first, quote, practical and useful matches ignitable by friction. Mm. Uh, So I guess he's saying that maybe – that according to Thorpe at least, somebody else in France created a friction match earlier, but it was not practical and useful enough to count. And that kind of raises a general question. Like when we give somebody credit for an invention, how impractical – does a version of an invention need to be before it doesn't count at all?
3: <laughs> right, right, yeah. I and mean, we, we discussed this a little bit, I and mean, we discussed this time and time again on the show, really, but it, yeah. it came up when we were discussing cocktails yeah. with, uh, with Jeff Beach mm-hmm. Like, Berry. It's one thing to be able to make the cocktail in your home kitchen, another to be able to serve it. It's one thing to be able to create something like a match in your workshop, but to produce it on scale, to be able to actually uh, get it out there as a dependable way of sparking a flame.
4: Yeah, and Thorpe doesn't really go into more detail. So I, I don't know what exactly was so impractical about Francois Duron's, uh friction match. But it, it sounds like it, it didn't work very well, <laughs> <or> at <laughs> least according to Thorpe's uh, diagnosis here. Um, so, so here we're left with John Walker. He's the one who almost always gets the credit. He was born in 1781. Uh, I was reading a blog post about him by Andrew Haynes for the Pharmaceutical Journal, and it described Walker's father as a grocer, a draper, and a druggist, which is a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, John was the third son in the family, and originally he was on the road to become a surgeon, which was, of course, a very exciting road to occupy at this time and place. You know, think late 18th century in oh, northern yeah. England. He's probably pretty close to the medical colleges of Scotland. Uh, See our episodes about the casket from last October if you want more wonderful medical mischief of that time and place. Uh, But so he served an apprenticeship with the town's head surgeon and he was eventually uh, appointed an assistant surgeon in the town. But John Walker had a bit of a problem with this career path. He was reportedly quite squeamish and he could not stomach the sight of blood and all those gaping holes in human bodies. And ultimately, this led him to quit his career path and say, I just can't do surgery.
3: Well, that's understandable. That would have been a tough hurdle to get over, especially at that
4: time. Yeah. Uh, So he reversed course. He left surgery behind and he went back to study pharmacy in Durham and in York. And after he completed his education in in pharmacy, uh, he moved back home. And in 1819, he opened his own whatever you would want to call it for this period, an apothecary, a pharmacy shop, uh, that kind of business uh, in Stockton-on-Tees, his hometown. So friction matches are another one of these inventions that is at least alleged to have been partially discovered by accident. So how did this work? Well, John Walker already had an interest in fire production and in practical chemistry. And sometime in the 1820s, he started creating and selling a mixture of potassium chlorate and antimony sulfide bound together with gum Arabic. And he called this flammable product Percussion powder, so he's already making uh, a a flammable mixture uh, on a regular basis and selling it in his druggist shop. But one day in 1826, John Walker was preparing a mixture of the percussion powder and while mixing the chemicals together, he used a little wooden stick to stir them, which of course became coated at one end in this lighting fluid. And the story goes that he happened to scrape this stick across the rough stone of
3: his hearth, and then the chemical-coated part burst into flames. Now, this is the kind of accidental discovery that could if, – if situations were, were just right or just wrong enough perhaps, it could well be the last discovery you make. Right. <laughs> it could be a really, um, a really final eureka moment. Uh-huh. Uh, Yeah, say
4: if it was too close to the rest of his powder, he had a big mass of it there or something. But uh, Walker immediately knew that he had an important new product on hand, one that could easily produce fire from no original fire with little effort and it was very portable to boot. So on April 7th, 1827, we know from his diaries, that was the day he began selling these early strike matches in his pharmacy under the name Friction Lights. Now, the ones he sold were made by hand out of first cardboard and later little wooden splints. Uh, I read that he he apparently hired people from the town to just sit around cutting up tiny little wooden splints for him. And then he would coat the ends of them in potassium chloride antimony sulfide uh, bound together with gum arabic. And he sold the friction lights with a piece of glass paper or sandpaper. And the instructions were to fold the sandpaper over the head of the match and then pull the stick out sharply. Hmm. Now, the sandpaper in this case did not have any special chemical properties of its own. It was just regular sandpaper. It was just there to be a very rough surface to provide the the heat from the friction when striking it. Right. Because there's
3: not necessarily going to be a brick on hand to strike it off of.
4: Right. And the friction would ignite the dried paste and then you would have your flame. Uh, but Walker did not acquire a patent on his process, and this turned out the worst for him. Within just a few years, other producers, you know, almost immediately just swooped in, began selling copycats. Uh, some of the best-known friction light copycats were produced by a Samuel Jones of London. And these friction matches were known at the time as lucifers. (laughs) Apparently, they had uh, more – not just the antimony sulfide, but they had a more direct sulfur content. They might have just been sulfur dipped. Mm -hmm. And the name lucifer has something to do with that. The fact that they were sulfur dipped uh, is from the sulfurous smell that would be released when you ignite it. Ah,
3: So it would would smell like the fires of hell when you light one of these matches.
4: Yeah, the the brimstone tenders. Mm Uh, And then there were other copycats also who were soon on the market. Uh, Thorpe mentions sulfur-dipped competitors sold in London by Jones competitors G.F. Watts uh, and by Richard Bell and Company, which sold theirs as Improved Lucifers. Improved Lucifers.
3: That sounds like a redemption arc uh, for the the fallen angel. Yeah. Uh, And apparently John Walker
4: himself was not a fan of the name Lucifers for matches. He didn't like it. I don't know if that was – If that was him being precious about his invention, or if he was a pious man, or what. Interesting, huh? But for some reason, he wasn't into that.
3: It also it is kind of a clunky name, right? It's yeah. one thing to say, "Hey, do you have a light? Do you have a match?" Excuse me. So, do you have any lucifers yeah. on, on your person? I mean, that's uh, why go with uh, three syllables when you when all you need is one. Just I'm, call them devils. Yeah, de- well, devil would work. Or you know, again, just a light, a match. Uh, like the, this, somewhat rolls off the tongue a lot easier. Hast thou a prince of darkness in thy pocket? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a spare Beelzebub <laughs> to spare with me? Um, um, a Mephistopheles, uh, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I mean, once you get into a bunch of clunky devil names, uh, easier just to go back to light. So I've got a really funny— Oh, addendum. but wait. Well, well, that does remind me, though, of course, the, the other part of the name is Lucifer means bringer of light, correct? Of course it does, so, yeah. Yeah. So it, it is a great name. It's a double, yeah. yeah but it is also is. a little clunky. Yeah.
4: Uh, so th- there's a great addendum to this story <laughs> that I just happened to come across. So in the English town of Stockton-on-Tees, this town in northern England that John Walker is from, where the— the friction match was invented there is a statue to honor john walker it was erected in 1977 which would have been the 150th anniversary of the first year that he sold the matches remember that was 1827 mm-hmm. but there's a twist uh, i was reading about in uh, in the times of london apparently in 1990 the borough council of stockton on tees found out that the town statue of john walker was based on the likeness of the wrong John Walker. Oh, no. It had been made from an etching of a London actor named John Walker who never invented anything as far as we know, never even visited Stockton on Tees. And they, after they found this out, they kept it a secret until just a few years ago. When there, were a <laughs> number, there, was, there were some newspaper articles that came out about it.
3: It would be like if, um, you know, uh, centuries from now, uh, someone decided to to, to create a, a statue to honor the physicist uh Brian Cox. And then they, they, but instead of uh, of the, the, the dashing scientist uh, they found uh, uh, an image of the uh, you know perhaps less dashing but certainly charismatic actor How Brian Cox. How dare you How I mean, dare you speak ill of the actor Brian Cox. Okay, well, in his younger years I imagine he was he was more dashing. But uh, generally he is uh, I would say he is he has more of a, a severe look. Yeah. Uh, uh, to modern audiences, people who know him from, like, Manhunter on. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, that may be the earliest film I can remember seeing with uh, with, with him in it. I, I really don't have any familiarity with the younger Brian Cox. He's got a small role in the early 70s film Nicholas and
4: Alexandra about oh, the last family of okay. the Romanovs in which he plays Trotsky. Yeah? Is he yeah. recognizable? I— don't know it's been a long time since I saw the movie, but okay. I, but he, he he's in there
3: all right I just mainly associate him with like a, a fearsome bear of a man um you know with a very very haggard look and voice, um very different from uh, the physicist so did they back to this uh the statue though uh, of John Walker did they fix it does did, did they I haven't read anything about fix it I don't know I mean when you're
4: dealing I, with, I do not
3: know the resolution <laughs> of this story. I just know it was the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it, when you're dealing with historical figures of, of this caliber, uh, I mean, what does it matter, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at least we're remembering their name and their accomplishments, even if we essentially have an actor playing them in the statue. What
4: if that uh, statue of RoboCop in Detroit was based on the <laughs> wrong RoboCop?
3: Oh, no, that would be blasphemous. Yeah, like like the RoboCop 3 RoboCop? Or, yeah. Was it, wait, was it a different actor in RoboCop 3? I'm sure it was, Yeah. yeah. Or the RoboCop, the TV show RoboCop. It just would not be the same.
4: Or the reboot RoboCop. Oh, that would be the worst. Oh, that reboot. That was not good. Not good. I no. haven't seen it. Oh, well, actually, it was one of those movies. I, I, I had complex thoughts about it. It felt like a movie that might have been a better movie in an earlier draft of the script. Mm. But the script had been rewritten to make it worse. <laughs> that that was my intuition. Okay.
3: That sounds about right. Um. Back to, to matches, you're talking about the, the use of the sandpaper and folding it over. Uh, th- this brings back so many memories of of using matches uh, as, as a kid mm-hmm. um, and sort of getting comfortable with them because a match, especially if you're told to be careful with matches enough, it can be intimidating to strike one. Sure. Um especially if you're using the little cardboard uh, matches that are in the, you know, the little cardboard foldy uh, mm-hmm. uh, apparatus, uh, you know, those you sometimes have to get your fingernails rather close, uh, perhaps uncomfortably close, uh, to the tip of the match to do the strike. And then mm-hmm. you have to sort of backtrack really quickly. Uh, and it might get a little warm on the tips of your fingers. And uh, and, and sometimes you're tempted to do the fold over method, which can result in just destroying a match because you might be uh, pinching it too... Uh, uh, pull the head off. Yeah, yeah, you pull the head off or it's just – there's there's kind of like a – and then it's gone. Yeah. Funny enough, I know the
4: exact minute mechanical complaint you're talking about.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and then likewise, I mean, sometimes you'd have like the big box of matches, mm-hmm. you know, like a proper fireplace box of matches. And you would use it so much that the strike uh, plate would be uh, – uh, the sandpaper area would be worn down mm-hmm. where you couldn't even effectively strike anything anymore. Um uh, and and then there were you. People would have various tricks too, right? I mean, you'd see people who could do the the finger, the fingernail uh, striking of the match, or use a belt buckle or a brick or something. I never had any luck with any uh, you know, extracurricular striking methods.
4: <laughs> that's like pony boy and Dally kind of stuff. Yeah.
3: Plus, I'm thinking like your fingernail—that always seemed a little dangerous. Like, couldn't you risk getting a little? Um, like match head up underneath your fingernail, that just doesn't sound pleasant.
4: Real greasers too
3: tough to care about that. <laughs> Probably so. Still, it beats biting through a, a glass cylinder, right? I 100% <laughs> agree. All right. So
4: I think we're going to have to call this episode there, but we're going to be back for one more part of our exploration of matches next time where where we will explore more of the role of phosphorus in match manufacturing and the safety match.
3: All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. If you go to InventionPod.com, that'll shoot you over to the iHeart uh, page for the show. Wherever you get the show, all we ask is uh, subscribe, rate, review. These are all things you can do to help out the show. Also, just tell a friend. Spread the word uh, like, like a fire spread from one match head to another as a child plays through an entire box of matches in their backyard without their parents' knowledge.
4: I know we keep referencing this by by the way, if small children are listening, don't play with matches, kids. Yes. I know it is fun, but you know,
3: yes, we were remin- we reminiscing on, uh, on on playing with matches, but even at the time, it felt very dangerous. I guess that's the thrill of it, right? But yes, don't play with matches. Um, they, they, uh, the fire, they catch fire. <laughs> they, they you catch fire. With fire comes great responsibility.
4: All right. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode, uh, to uh, suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at Invention is
2: a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: At JC Penny, fashion counts for everybody moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first. Like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. What's up y'all? Janice Torres here,
0: and I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks.